Amen. Well, welcome. We're so glad you're here. And we are extremely thankful for our Kids Zone and Nursery volunteers who uh, systematically teach our kids the Bible week in and week out, um, voluntarily missing the morning service so that they can serve our kids. We're so thankful for them. Uh, I need, not yet, one more thing I got to do before that. Um, we have a, a sober uh, church moment here, so I just want to kind of, I just want you to settle in, um, because if you don't get the prayer prompter uh, emails, then this is going to come as a real shock. So I'm just kind of giving you a moment to brace yourself. So uh, this week, our brother Don Cara passed away. Um, it was sudden, and it was um, a very intense illness that lasted only a short time. And he was 60 years old. Dear Heavenly Father, uh, Lord, we pray that you be with the Cara family and that you would walk with them through their grief. Lord, we know that you are the man of sorrows and that you are acquainted with grief. Um, so what they're going through won't be a surprise to you. So Lord, meet them in it. Help them through it. Let them know the joy of the Lord again. Lord, I pray that this morning you would stand in front of me while I'm in front of them, that you would talk over me while I talk to them. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I need a volunteer that is under 16 and is willing to play with fire. I need a volunteer that is under 16. Okay, Sully, come on up. I mean, his dad was a firefighter, so this should go great. Come on, man, run. Do it like I do it. Jump right up. Awesome. That's just like I do it. <laughs> Give him a hand. That's great. All right, now, I need you to light this match and see how long you can keep it lit. All right, so we're going to count for him. So 1,001, 1,002. We're going to count for him while he does it, okay? So whenever you're ready. 1,001, 1,002, 1,003, 1,004, 1,005, 1,006, 1,007, 1,008. Wow, well done. Give me five. Good job. Okay, thank you. Why did I just do that? Because life is a vapor. We tried to go over that our first week in Ecclesiastes. We saw in Ecclesiastes uh, 1, I don't remember if it's 2 or verse 3, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. And what we saw is life is really, really short. And I compared it to like lighting a match. And so no matter how long 
you try and keep your life lit. You don't know how long it lasts. You don't know. You're not in charge of that, really. As hard as, hard as you try, you can't keep it going forever. And so this is the point Ecclesiastes makes, is that life is really, really short and really, really unpredictable. And in light of that, because that's true, what Ecclesiastes impels us to do, like pleads with us to do, is to find joy in life even though it's really, really short and really, really unpredictable. So my question for you this morning is, if you had 79 days to live, what would keep you from having joy? So, I mean, we just picked out November 27th, um, kind of at the beginning of this series, to kind of say, if you had this long to live, you, I mean, I'm sure you have long, I guess I'm not sure, I believe you have longer than that to live. None of us know, because life is short and life is unpredictable. But I think you probably have longer than that to live, but you don't have forever to live. So whatever your timeline is left, what would keep you from joy? I want to talk about what would keep you from joy this morning. And I want to help you find joy. I want to help you take joy. My goal for this series, really, is that you be more joyful on the other side of it. So here we are in Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verse 1. Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun. So that's something that would take away joy, being oppressed. And behold, the tears of the oppressed... And they had no one to comfort them. So, you know, you see people weeping and gnashing teeth and crying because they're getting ripped off, because they're being beat up, because they're getting lied to, because they're being taken advantage of, and no one cares because they're poor. And on the side of the oppressors, there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. Same phrase. And I think this points back to chapter 3, verse 17, that says, I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and for every work. Like, God will judge in this life or the next. Believe me, he will. There is a season coming for judgment. So who's going to comfort the people that are doing the oppression? What hope is there for them, is, is the question. And I thought that the dead were... Our, I thought that the dead who are already dead, more fortunate than the living who are still alive. It's kind of like this idea of, I wish I was dead. I don't know if you've ever thought that. Like, I wish I was dead. Like, this is so hopeless and so hard and so miserable. I just, I wish I was dead. That doesn't sound like joy to me. Does it <laughs> doesn't sound like joy to you, I don't think either. Verse 3, but better than both is he who has not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. Kind of the idea is, I wish I'd never been born. So I believe this is a book about joy, and this is a book about joy in real circumstances. And this is real. The, the author of the book of Ecclesiastes is staring reality in its ugly face and saying, if this is all you have, life can be utterly hopeless and joyless. But this is not all we have because we have God's grace. So if you look back with me at chapter 2, verse 24, this 
reality-facing author says there is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment, I have that underlined twice and highlighted, that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is, and this is underlined as well, from the hand of God, for apart from him who can eat or drink or who can have enjoyment. See, where does joy come from? The Lord. Lord. Joy comes from the Lord. Joy does not come from having more control of the people around you or more stuff. Joy comes from the Lord. Then, then look at verse chapter, chapter 3, verse 12. I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful. Joyful is circled in red. And do good as long as they live. Also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. Then, I have, then there's a dash, and this is underlined and circled in red. This is a gift from God. Where does joy and pleasure come from ultimately? It comes from God. So everyone is doing their level best to escape the grind. Ecclesiastes would say, if your goal is to escape the grind, if you think you will be happy when you escape the grind, Ecclesiastes would say, you are dead wrong and destined for a joyless life because God gives joy in the grind. You're going to spend most of your life grinding you might as well find joy, the joy that God gives in the grind. That's, that's what that is saying. And take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. Then down in verse 22 of chapter 3. So I saw there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. This is, this is God's gift that you enjoy your daily grind because this is the gift God has given you. So in chapter 3 now... I'm sorry, in chapter 4 now, we're saying, yeah, but there's stuff that's really not enjoyable. And what about that? What about being oppressed? And the answer to that is, God is the one that gives comfort. So your source of joy is in God's comfort. So God gives comfort in the next life. That's why I read to you chapter 3, verse 17, about the coming judgment But God also gives comfort in this life. He gives comfort in this life. That's 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3 through 4, where it says, Blessed be the God and Father of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we are able to comfort others. That word comfort is not like a soft pillow. It's not like your favorite pillow. A couple years ago, my wife threw away my pillow. I was so mad. That pillow was brand new. It was only 20 years old. I mean, yeah, I mean, it was nice and flat. It was kind of like a sheet that you'd fold over once and then you could lay on. My wife was like, there's stuff growing in that thing. We're not keeping that. The word comfort here is not like a pillow that you've got broke in. The word comfort here is like when you've gone out too hard in a race, a long race, and you're really, really suffering, and you don't know if you're going to make it, and you come around the corner, and then way up there in the distance, you can see the finish line. And you, there's comfort in knowing the race will end. 
There's courage in knowing the race will end. There's strength in knowing I just have to get there. That's this word comfort that God gives. He gives comfort in this life. He gives us strength in this life so we can face affliction in this life. And he gives us comfort in the next life. So the question is, man, what happened? Who lied to you? Who ripped you off? Who took advantage of you? Who used you or abused you? And this is like something that would just take away your joy for your whole life. You'd be bitter and angry your whole life. And Ecclesiastes would say, you don't have to. You can take joy in the Lord's comfort if you choose that. Because God will right every wrong and God will give you strength in this life. So one obstacle would be bitterness over hurt and one hurdle forward would be taking comfort in God's courage and in God's strength. Okay, second obstacle is envy. Then I saw that all the toil and all the skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. I'm going to quote to you from uh, the book, The Psychology of Money, in just a little bit. And in this book, the guy argues that modern-day capitalism is extremely good at producing wealth and is also extremely good at producing envy. And he says, maybe they're related Yeah, I think they are. Then I saw all the toil and all the skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This is also vanity and striving after the wind. This is really, really empty to always be chasing what your neighbor has and trying to have a little bit more than the neighbor that has a little bit more than you. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Okay, so option one is I never have enough I am working really, really hard to have a little bit more than the person who has a little bit more. Option number two is I quit in envy and I just sit and do nothing and that is self-destructive laziness. Utterly self-destructive, straight up lazy. Option number three, better, there's our word. You've seen that word a couple times now in the book of Ecclesiastes. Better is a handful of quietness. You do need a handful than two handfuls of toil and a striving after the wind. 1 Timothy 6, 6 says, Godliness with contentment is great gain. That's option three. You need a handful, and you can have quietness. And most of us have a handful. We might not have two handfuls. We might not have a truck full, but we have a handful. A handful of quietness is enough. Again, I said I was going to quote from uh, The Psychology of Money. He writes about this, and he says, Consider a rookie baseball player who earns half a million dollars a year. He is, by any definition, rich. So this is written in 2018. I don't know what rookies make today, if that's more than that, or I don't know. But it's, uh, this is five years ago, so I assume it's more than that. But how old is a rookie baseball player? Maybe 22, 
maybe 25. If you are a 22, 23, 24, 25-year-old male making half a million dollars a year, are you doing okay? But say he plays on the same team as Mike Trout, who has a 12-year, $430 million contract. By comparison, hey, do you, like, envy, remember? He is dirt stinking poor, and how in the world is he making it? But then think about Mike Trout. Poor old Mike Trout. I have no idea who Mike Trout is. I'm not a baseball fan. I'm just quoting from the author. $36 million a year, maybe an insane amount of money, but to make the top list of the top 10 highest paid hedge fund managers in 2018, you need to earn at least $340 million in one year. Poor Mike Trout, he's looking at those hedge fund managers going, how can I even afford? I don't know what he can't afford, but <laughs> they're doing so much better than me. That's who people like Mike Trout might compare. Oh, that's an important word. That's an envy word, right? Their incomes too. And the hedge fund manager who makes $340 million per year compares, that's an envy, right? Compares himself to the top five hedge fund managers who earn at least $770 million in 2018. They're content though, right? Like, they look at their pile and they're like, that's plenty. Because once you reach a certain amount of money, you don't need any more, right? I mean, you know that's not true. Those top managers can look ahead to people like Warren Buffett, whose personal fortune increased by $3.5 billion in 2018. And it goes on. Same book, the guy talks about Bernie Madoff and how he was doing his work honestly at one point, and was like, I, I'm going to get the numbers wrong because I'm not a numbers guy, but he was in like in the top half percent of earners in America. Like he was phenomenally wealthy, but there was people that were ahead of him that he was jealous of and that he had to keep up with, and so he started cheating, and, and then you know the rest of the story. Because if you are comparing yourself to others, you will never, never, never have enough. And I'm telling you, this will rob the joy from your life. This will be like a hole in the bucket that drains the joy from your life. So, this, this is not a Christian book, The Psychology of Money, but he writes, the hardest financial skill is, and then there's a blank, and I'm going to fill in the blank for you, but it's, the most, but it's one of the most important. Now, what's the hardest financial skill? I would say, well, maybe budgeting, you know, like making yourself do a budget every month or maybe saving for retirement or maybe paying off debt. I don't know what you think the hardest financial skill is. He says the hardest financial skill, but maybe one of the most important is getting the goalpost to stop moving. The author of the Ecclesiastes say, this is, this is how to have joy, though. If you want joy, the goalpost has to stop moving, and you've got to be content with your handful. You've got to be content with what you have. Or how will you ever have joy? 
I mean, compare yourself. Instead of, instead of comparing yourself to the folks that you might compare yourself to online, you're like, oh, they went there on vacation, or oh, they have the, that new whatever. Maybe compare yourself to your great-grandparents. Did they have air conditioning? I was talking to a guy my grandparents' age, and he wired his house so that it could have electricity. He grew up without a toilet, an indoor toilet. I mean, he had an outdoor toilet. Compare yourself to your grandparents a second, or your great-grandparents. Like, did they have two cars? If you want joy, be content with a handful that you have. It's enough. If you want joy, you look to God to make things right, and you look to God to give you strength in the moment, strength for the day, no matter what's happening to you. If you want joy, you're content with what He gives. If you want joy, let's keep going here. Again, I saw vanity under the sun. So I did my best to draw a picture of what this author is describing here in this third, third section, this third way to not have joy. And this third way to not have joy is related to the middle one, and it is about ambition. Ambition that will make you lonely Ambition that will drain all the joy from your life. And I've got to tell you, man, I have lived this. Like, this, this one is probably the most personal for me. I have lost friendships over this, both because of me and because of them. Again, I saw vanity under the sun. One person who has no other, either son nor brother, yet there is no end to all his toil. And his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? Like, he never stops to ask, why am I doing all this? In fact, most people lie to themselves and say, I'm doing this for my kids. Well, your kids don't know you. Yeah, but I'm doing it for them. You know, who are you doing? I'm doing this for my wife. Well, I think she'd rather you are around once in a while. It's just straight up, you're trying to build your kingdom and you're trying to climb to the next thing and the next thing and the next thing and you're mad that you're, you know, that you're not up here and you're not up there. Even though most people live down here, you've gotten quite a ways up, but you keep on toiling, you keep on working and there's never any rest. And you don't have time for friends, you don't have time for family, you don't have time because of ambition. This is also vanity in an unhappy business. Nice way of saying it's a bad way to waste your life. So here's the other option. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. Hey, here's what I want you to see because you guys probably have all heard this passage before at one time or another. Um, and if you haven't, welcome. We're glad you're here, man. <laughs> so, so glad you're here. If you haven't, but... But notice that in this passage about friendship, they're doing something together all the time. There's always movement and action. They're not just sitting, waiting for each other. There's always movement and action because they have a good reward for their toil. So two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. 
But woe to the one who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. And again, if two lie together, they keep warm. So in the ancient world, when you were on a long journey or before a battle, when there is not an inn available, you'd lie back to back with the person that you were traveling with so you could share some body heat. Again, if two lie together, they will keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? Though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. So the, the idea is take joy in godly friendship because this is a gift from the Lord. Now, the alternative is lonely ambition. So look, here's the thing. Friends are inconvenient. <laughs> I consider myself one of Kent's friends, so I kind of took that amen kind of personally. But we're friends, so I can forgive him. We did a workout yesterday, uh, a couple of us, at 6 a.m., from 6 a.m. to 7 a.m. And uh, I, was, I was telling the guys, I am so thankful that we got to work out together because I worked out so much harder having you guys here than, than I would have by myself. But I said, I'm going to talk, talk about the idea of friendship tomorrow. And I said, you know, this is inconvenient. We could have, each of us, have the stuff we could have worked out by ourselves in our house. We wouldn't have had to drive in. We wouldn't have had to drive back. We're, you know, the reason we we're working out at that time of the day is because we all had deadlines that we had to get to that day. You know, we all had other stuff going on. Except for one of us who just showed up because he's a good friend. Super inconvenient, but he did it because he's a good friend and because friendship is worth it. You know, like we talked about this on Wednesday nights. Wednesday nights are inconvenient. You have other stuff you could be doing on Wednesday nights. You have lots of other stuff, other errands to run. You could still be working. You could still be hustling. You could still be this. You could still be that. It's inconvenient. But if you want community, well, then you've got to show up. It's, I mean, that's how life is. If you want the community, you have to show up for it. It's not going to be convenient. It's like in this passage. If, if you want to work together, you have to start when the other person wants to start, or at least you have to negotiate what project you're going to work on and when you're going to start. If you're going to travel together, you have to negotiate where you're going to go, when you're going to leave. If, if they're in a fight and you see them in a fight, well, guess what? Even though it's not your fight, you've got to go fight because... Here we are. Two, two cannot be overcome if one gets attacked. So friendship is not the most convenient thing in the world, but if you want it, you've got to be inconvenienced by it, and you will benefit from it. So please, find a way to invest in friendship. I mean, this is, this is church, right? You're, you're the blood-bought body of Christ. Find a way to plug into church and serve. And you'll figure out eventually you have friends. That you're working alongside. So here's what we've said. We've said, take joy in the Lord. And ultimately, when you step back and you look at the really big picture of joy and thanksgiving in the Bible and God's gifts, you come to the conclusion that God's greatest gift and our greatest source of joy is Jesus himself. Because we read, For God so loved the world that he gave, that he gave.
his only son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. And man, if you have this gift, you have this sense of joy because you know that Jesus took the punishment for your sins and that he'll make all things right and all things new in the end. If not, if not, then believe this. You're in danger of perishing. If you have this gift, you, you have contentment because you know that whatever you have is from the hand of a loving God that loves you so much that he'd send his son to die on your behalf. If you have this gift, you have a friend because greater love has no man than this than he lay down his life for his friends. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, I pray that you would help us take joy in the Lord. Lord, I pray that you would help us take joy in the gift of your Son. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.